On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcasts platforms. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by cardiologist Dr. Paddy Barrett, chatting all things cardiovascular disease. The way I look at this is that the the two statistics that everyone should really be aware of is cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death globally and in most developed nations, but it's also the most preventable. 90% of it can be prevented at an early stage if you just follow the right steps and formula. So I look at it as a, a scary opportunity. As ever available on all podcast platforms. Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Why have you got yourself mired in this? You're not a trans person, you're not a woman. Why have you made this your issue? I'll admit, I'm not a great person to be in this conversation. I'm a comedy writer and I am very blunt. Graham Linehan rose to prominence in the 90s as one of the brains behind arguably Ireland's greatest ever TV export, Father Ted. Recent years though, he's become more notable for his divisive opinions around transgender issues and has been campaigning publicly, online and in the media. But the reason hate crimes have increased is because everything is now transphobic, including saying statements like, men aren't women. These are considered transphobic statements. Linehan and nearly two dozen other campaigners are now in the middle of a -a one-of-a-kind legal case in Northern Ireland, taking action against a Belfast pub on the grounds of discrimination. You know, before this, all I was doing was writing comedy and playing board games, being silly on the internet. And then I just said, no, hang on a sec, stop calling these women TERFs, let them speak. And for that, they just destroyed me. I'm Ellen Coyne, and today on the Indo-Daily, I'm joined by Irish independent journalist John Marr to discuss the latest in the ongoing case and how the Father Ted creator's laughs dried up. So, John, Graham Lennon has been making more headlines than TV shows recently. Explain to us, first of all, why is he back in the news this week? He is part of a group of about two dozen women's rights activists who are taking uh, a case against a Belfast pub. They claim to have been discriminated against um, after uh, attending uh, an event in March in April of last year. Um, Quite a contentious march. There was a lot of coverage in the papers. A lot of those people were also in Dublin over the summer as well. But the pub claimed that it was it was anti-transphobic and would not serve, as they call it, TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, to use that term that's kind of a brickbat. And Graham Lenehan, who is a very vocal character at the best of times, is among those leading this charge to take a stand against that particular pub. 
So Graham was with these demonstrators April last year after this event that you explained to us. They went into the pub, had some food and some drinks, and their account is that they were asked to leave by staff because they were turfs or they were exactly transphobic. Yeah. yeah, and of course, social media had played quite a significant role in this because these events, including the one in Dublin, had been heavily publicised in advance. So people on all sides of that debate were saying, you know, uh, on the one hand, this is great, let's go out and support them. On the other hand, make sure if your local business do not put them up, do not give them meeting rooms, you know, show us your support. So it just became very kind of um, polarised and it came to a head in Belfast. I mean, according to Graeme Lenehan, that word turf was thrown at them and, you know, they were, I think, 90 minutes into their meal and they were told, you know, we want you to leave. We're not comfortable with you here. Not just him, but the the other people as well, pretty much all of whom were, were female. It's a really interesting case. I know that the solicitor who's representing Linehan and I think some of the other activists, Simon Chambers, has been giving some interviews about it. And he seems, now I know a solicitor would say this anyway, but he seems quite confident that they do have a strong case and that they are likely to win. Why is that? Why is he so confident? Well, his direct quote that he gave to the Belfast Telegraph is because gender critical views are protected under equality legislation. And that's the central plank of this, that this is all about equality. And I suppose that, you know, that's something that trans rights activists would say repeatedly, that we are looking for equality. So you've got this group of people saying, well, we also want equality. Why should we be asked to leave somewhere on the basis of our opinions? There was a judgment in the UK in 2021 that ruled in favour here. To read a little of it, an employment tribunal judgment found the belief that sex is binary, is, quote, worthy of respect in a democratic society and, quote, again, must be tolerated. A case called Forrestetter versus Centre for Global Development Europe. It's very interesting because in the UK and in recent years in Ireland, it's a very heated debate. On one side, you have people who say that members of the trans community are vulnerable, they need to be protected, they're entitled to certain rights. And then at the other side, there seems to be a perception that the advancement of rights for trans people is a threat to the rights of cisgender women. So it seems that as this debate intensifies, this case is going to become about much more than your right to sit in a pub. It's kind of a, a cause celeb, maybe. I for think that is absolutely the case. And Graham Lenehan, for many years now, has attracted all manner of publicity. He is a very significant public figure, whether he wants to be or not. I mean, he might argue that he wants to be just regarded as a writer of great comedic television. But absolutely, when he is centre in a story, the news follows. And I think this will rumble on and on. And he is also a master publicist himself. And I think it's going to be a big deal. There's probably people who are listening to this who can't understand why a man that they understood as the writer of the beloved Father Ted is in the middle of a case about transgender rights. So we might try and help people <laughs> understand exactly what happens. So John, can you take us back maybe to the start of Graham Linhan's career? Talk us through how he became such a celebrated and I suppose respected TV writer, first of all. He started off in music journalism. You know, he's from Casnock in Dublin originally, and he wound up in Hot Press in the late 80s. And at the time, Hot Press had a, a very fine writers there. And a 
page designer called Arthur Matthews, a very funny guy. And in his recently published memoir, Tough Crowd, Graham Lenehan talks about just being bowled over by this guy that was sitting beside him about how funny he was and like a, a, a bromance uh, <laughs> developed. I mean, of course, that term didn't exist in the late 80s, but they just hit it off like a house on fire. And Lenehan always was drawn to comedy, probably more so than music mm-hmm. in many respects. And like a lot of Irish people of that generation, London came calling. It just seemed that this is where you need to go if you want to pursue that. And he convinced Arthur Matthews to join him over there. So I asked Arthur to come over and he amazingly said yes, which is about the luckiest aspect of the whole thing. Because if he'd said no, uh, I'd still be interviewing the drums, you know. But um, we, we lived together for four years, writing on a really cheap rent, so we had, we had time to, to learn the craft by writing sketches and not worry so much about our income. And, um, you know, it just took off from there, really. They started writing jokes for a bunch of small television shows and they were seen slowly but surely within that world of comedy they were seen to be very good, kind of background people who had a lot of talent. And, of course... At the back of all of this, percolating away was this idea of a priest in rural Ireland, which on paper sounds terrible, (laughs) you know. I mean, you kind of go, how is this going to be funny? I mean, more than 30 years on, this stands alongside the likes of Faulty Towers. It has endured incredibly well. It is still extremely funny. And I suppose it was the two of them, Matthews and Lenehan together, that had different comedic interests, but they were able to create this cast of characters, not just Ted and Dougal and Mrs. Doyle. Mrs. Doyle. Doyle. How could I forget with all her (laughs) demands to drink tea, but Bishop Brennan and all those incredible kind of priests that were there. (laughs) What are we watching? We're looking at the sports day. Lots of young fellas running around in shorts. That's the kind of thing you like looking at. And I bet you like that, too. Well, you're probably imagining what they'd look like without shorts. You're sitting there, imagining that, with a big smile on your face, you dirty fecker. I wrote about his book when it came out at the end of last year, and the first half of it is enthralling. Mm. It is so interesting to where he takes us on this journey particularly in the the making of that show. And he's quashing a lot of myths. I mean, one myth that continues to persist is this idea that RTE turned it down. Yes. It was never, ever offered to RTE. They always looked at Channel 4 because Channel 4 at the time was considered the very best place to place comedy. I mean, there are a lot of people that were not born when this when those three seasons were that that adore it and get it. And it has stood the test of time remarkably well. And that is largely down to how good this guy was at comedy. He really was special. Yeah, and like, as you said, it was only three seasons long, but it's endured for decades. Mm. It's widely regarded as probably one of the most successful comedy sitcoms of all time. It is absolutely hilarious. Graham Lennon did continue to work in some TV projects. We know he went on to be involved in things like the IT crowd, which is excellent. But as the writer of Father Ted, he was kind of set for life to have this incredible reputation and to be very well respected. But things turned then. Can you kind of help maybe particularly people who might not spend a lot of time online to understand what happened? 
Yeah, and it's quite a tricky one to to talk about because even before Graham Lenehan really enmeshed himself in this trans debate, he was quite a a provocative, volatile mm-hmm. figure, and I found that myself on a personal level because about ten or eleven years ago, I wrote a profile of him for the Irish Independent. The reason was he had worked on a sitcom called Count Arthur Strong, right. and if people don't remember that, well, they're not alone. It kind of disappeared. It was very badly received by critics as well, but he took criticism of it very sensitively. And at the time, he took to Twitter, which he was wont to do, and, you know, lambasted me. I'd never met the man before. And he just, you know, he had about half a million followers at the time. And it was the first and probably only time that I felt what a pylon is like. And it was really unpleasant. You know, people were going, you know, this guy should be fired. We're going to contact your boss. You know, you're a disgrace, you know, nothing, all this kind of stuff. And it was like, I I was having people that I hadn't spoken to for years contact me to say, are you okay? We're just seeing this kind of breakdown. So before all of that, he was a a flinty character and a challenging person. And he kind of wrote about that in the book as well, that even in the early days, you know, he could fall out with people. Famously, he fell out with Arthur Matthews, you know, which was a huge shame considering how close they had been. And it was, by his own admission, his own fault. So he kind of could accept that. Tell me more about that row with Arthur Matthews, because they were quite the duo before that. They really were. And just a quote from his book, he describes Matthews as the man who altered the course of my life. And later says, Arthur never said a thing out loud that wasn't funny. I realised quickly that he had the spark of the divine in him. So there was such a strong friendship and working bond as well. The problem was that after Father Ted, with this incredible success, they were looking, what do we do next? And what they did next was a show called Hippies, which Arthur Matthews seemed to be really keen on and Lenehan not so at all. And... Lenehan walked away from it and that was the sundering of that friendship from that point on. And for instance, you know, a lot of people think that the two of them worked on the IT crowd together. They didn't. And years later, they never really reestablished that friendship. And in the book, he consistently talks about his propensity to kind of damage friendships or whatever. Mm. So there's this sense of owning it to a degree, but also this feeling that what they might have achieved. And that's one of these great what ifs, what they could have done together. There was even talk about what would have been likely a really lucrative Father Ted the Musical project to go on the West End. I mean, that could have set him up for life. And that can't happen because after our man decided that he was going to get involved in this very kind of toxic debate, he was, by his own admission, effectively cancelled. So nobody wanted to work with him, including the backers of Father Ted the Musical. I mean, a lot of people say that the language you've used, some of the dismissive terms that you've bandied about have actually increased the toxicity of this debate. Can you give me an example? Yes, I can give you several if you want. (laughs) So um, what about comparing people in the trans debate to speaking out against Nazis? I mean, that's pretty extreme. Well, there's a couple of parallels. One is that at the moment, um, children are uh, basically being experimented on with uh, uh, puberty blockers. Uh, For instance... Oh, come on. You're not seriously trying to say that children going to the doctor and saying that they're worried about their gender is akin to children being experimented on in Nazi concentration camps. I'm afraid I am. So, 
tell us about how he did get involved in this transgender row that, by all accounts and by the sounds of his book, totally derailed his life and his career. It all began with an episode of the IT crowd called The Speech, where effectively transphobia is used as a joke. I'm not from Iran. Well, you said something along those lines. No, no, not Iran, a man. I said I used to be a man. You used to be a man. (laughs) Yes. And the backlash continued years later. Linehan, who was always drawn to the rapid fire world of Twitter, takes to Twitter to kind of not just defend the show, but also to kind of wade into this very complex discussion. And, you know, as we all know, Twitter is not a place for nuance. At the time when he would have got involved initially, it was limited to 140 characters per tweet. And he immediately aroused anger and upset among a lot of people. But rather than kind of take a step back from that and go, okay, maybe I need to have a think about this or maybe I need to engage in them. He just doubled down, dug his heels in and, you know, could be very aggressive on the platform to the point where he was eventually thrown off Twitter. Yeah, and I think that's important to say because there might be people who have different views on this very complex, very emotive issue who would share views. But I think the point that you're kind of making there with Graham Linehan is that he was saying things to the degree that he was being banned by the social media platform. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so horrific. You couldn't repeat them here, for instance, for libel reasons as much as anything else. It was really ugly and unpleasant. And, you know, people who even approached him on the platform in what they might have felt was a modest way could be really scorched by him. And again, you know, with so many followers, when you've got somebody who's seen as a figurehead like that, everybody else piles in as well. So it's not just one person kind of disagreeing with you vehemently. It's a whole tribe, essentially. And, you know, it has to be said, there are a lot of people that are very supportive of his views and see him as a hero. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, there are people that abhor the way he has behaved. I mean, I suppose one characteristic of all these difficult debates, and there are so many at the moment, is that often there's very little middle ground. You know, there's little reason debate on both sides of all these arguments. You've got people who are unshakable in their belief that they are correct. And I think that's a fair assessment of how he is on this particular debate. And why? Like, why did he do this? I suppose if you're of that view that the advancement of the rights of trans people are a threat to women, Mm. that kind of seems like a campaign that a lot of women in the UK were leading by themselves. I'm just kind of struggling to understand, like, why is this his fight? Well, the second half of his book, so well over 100 pages, he goes into a lot of detail about why he's taken on this. He claims he did it primarily for his family. And to quote um, him from an interview he gave to the Times of London last year, I did it for my wife and daughter, even though we broke up. I did it for them and I do it again. I don't think I'd have been doing my job as a father if I hadn't been fighting against this stuff. I don't want my daughter to go into college and have a male-bodied person whose story she doesn't know in the toilet with her. She cannot object to it. So I had to take that fight on for her. He feels that he had a public platform and a lot of women, as he puts it, were afraid to to couch similar views for fear of being cancelled. Mm. And his own assessment of himself is that he is willing 
to take on this fight. He is willing to step up alongside people like J.K. Rowling, very famous people, and argue, as he puts it, against the cult of trans ideology. Again, these are his kinds of terms. It's such a loaded subject that even the choice of words we use can be interpreted different ways. So I want to be careful there to try and remain as neutral as possible. But he sees it as his calling, essentially. And like, I would step back and go, you had the potential here to make millions. I mean, he made a lot of money initially, but, you know, he's upfront now about saying he's broke. There were so many opportunities that he squandered. Like one of the things in the book that really struck me was that in the US, he was approached, again, this is about the best part of 10 years ago, to work on a new project that was going to change the world, so to speak. And he talks about what it was. And then they go, we don't want you. When he gets into the trans debate, that show turned out to be only murders in the building for Disney Plus, which has become this massive sensation. So you can imagine... If you're asked to kind of write for this thing that's now a global success, I mean, you're going to be a millionaire. You don't ever have to work again after that. And aligned with that, if he hadn't got into this world, Father Ted the Musical absolutely would have happened. And it could have been a huge success. So he lost a lot of money. He lost a lot of work opportunities. According to him, this also led to him losing his marriage. We have not heard the perspective or or side of his wife on this. You say you're going to you know, you've decided to fight this, but it must feel like a lonely place and it must hurt and it must mess you up. Yeah, yeah. You know, they took everything from me, you know. Like what? What do you mean? They took my my family, you know. You would think when you're looking at what this campaigning, if you can call it that, has cost him, Uh, I think a lot of people would say that it it certainly hasn't been worth it. But he's saying the opposite. He is, but I wonder deep down, does he really feel that? Like anybody, you kind of put yourself into his shoes and you think, he's lost everything. It's kind of astonishing. And there's a sense that if you've lost everything, do you then publicly say, well, I really regret everything I've done? Mm. Uh, you know, I probably not. You just double down. He's shown time and again. That's what he does. He doubles down. This Belfast pub case, he's doubling down on that. If that had happened to me, for instance, back in April of last year, I probably would have been very annoyed to be asked to leave the pub. But I probably have got on with my life after that. Most people probably would have taken the same course of action. He does things differently. Can I just ask, a lot of his justifications, it's kind of like he's a white knight for women. And I'm just wondering, like, if women have their own views on trans women being in bathrooms, are women campaigners not well able to to do that on their own without having a man do it for them? One might have felt that way, but it seems that his support as they would put it, is welcome. I mean, just to go back to the Belfast thing, I mean, almost everybody in that pub with him were women. And I suppose they see him as a man standing up for their rights. And as they would see it, they wish more men would do the same. And I think that's how he sees it too. And something that emerges in the book, he has a major chip on his shoulder about what he sees as his colleagues abandoning him. He was very well got in the Irish-British comedy world for a while and he seems really put out, mortally offended that some other famous comics or even people like Graham Norton who got a platform on Father Ted have, as Graham Linhan would put it, 
just kind of left him on his own. And Graham Norton has just kind of decided that I've just popped out of existence. And the issue is is such a non-issue that he won't even discuss it. He's really upset that Arthur Matthews didn't come to his aid effectively or didn't publicly stand up. Um, he is furious about not just the likes of Graham Norton, um, who also has left Twitter, incidentally, but all manner of British comedians who he would have felt were kind of brave, tough comedians who would kind of withstand any crowd who just didn't want to know. So just a quote from the book, he said, I have met people, people I've worked with, big names, and begged them to become involved. Begged them. Please just say Graham Lenehan is right or Graham Lenehan has some important contributions to make on this. Anything that makes it sound as though I'm doing this for anything other than recreational cruelty. That's how I'm portrayed, like a recreational sadist. And none of them will stand up for me. He also says that, you know, people have said to him privately, I support you, but I don't want to go public on this. So I suppose the book does ask questions about cancel culture and about, you know, would this have happened 20 years ago in a world where social media didn't exist? Would it have been possible to quote unquote cancel somebody? Now, the other argument is, well, he's not cancelled because he's still out there. He has been reinstated onto X as Twitter is now known as. He's still very vocal on it. Intriguingly, the book sold badly, like very badly, because at the time it got a massive amount of publicity. And you kind of feel that with that sort of publicity, it's going to sell in the tens of thousands. Like it sold less than a thousand copies in Britain in the first week, which was considered a disaster. And then when it goes into the trans thing, I'm kind of going, God, this feels like I'm being beaten over the head with this. It feels like a polemic and my interest waned in it. And I did think, what a tragedy, because he's not a particularly old man. There's a lot of life left to live. There's so much potential there. And you kind of wonder, in this world that we're in now, you kind of wonder about shifting sands. Is there going to be a sense where people are rehabilitated? Is there a backlash against what's seen as wokeism? Like, is there going to be a second coming? I wouldn't necessarily put it past him. Who knows? But he might be his own worst enemy. When you're talking about cancel culture, to bring it back to Father Ted, there's probably people out there who sat down over Christmas to once again watch the Father Ted Christmas special who might always turn it on when it's repeated on Channel 4, who know nothing about Graham Linehan's culture wars and probably might not be moved either way on the issue of trans rights or maybe feel like they don't know enough about it. So is it kind of like the art now is allowed to exist on its own and still be loved while... Graham Linnan, I suppose, is suffering career-wise because of his personal opinions. I think that's a great question that's fundamental to all of this. I think we can separate controversy from art. I mean, Phil Spector was a monster, but the work he did was incredible. Roman Polanski made some extraordinary films. I think we have to do that. And certainly when I look at some of his work, not Count Arthur Strong, I hasten <laughs> to add, but the IT crowd and Father Ted, like despite seeing them umpteen times I still find it hilarious and my children 9 and 11 look at Father Ted and they are just laughing like drains they don't know about anything to do with this world that he's in but there was still that brilliance and we can't take that away from him and my thanks to John Marr I'm Ellen Coyne and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced by Ian Doyle, researched by Dave Hadnerty with sound by Rory Bones. Archive clips from BBC Newsnight, the Trigonometry podcast, YouTube and The Nolan Show. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.
Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel.